Hey, my name is Janice Brown, and welcome to the Back to the Past podcast. Here today we have Aaron Hall, and today we'll be focusing on the entertainment industry of the early 1900s. Hey Janice, it's so good to be here today. I am very glad. Now let's jump into the topic. I know a little bit about the early entertainment, but be sure to correct me if I'm wrong. Go ahead. Okay, so we all know World War I was very a difficult time for the soldiers and the people back at home. There were so many ways they dealt with it, and the ways was through entertainment. For example, the troop leaders would leave their soldiers in songs and independent musicals. That's correct. Many Americans were receiving leisure time during this time period. Their hours were being cut short. With the people back at home, they often attended amusement parks, baseball games, basketball games, and boxing matches. Theater halls were numerous, and performances were regularly given by the theater troops. Speaking of theater, many veterans back home would come back to the front and entertain the troops that came along. These entertainment acts included songs, dance acts, comical acts, and acrobatic routines. And ventriloquists, hypnotists, poets, comedians, choirs, and orchestras, and even circuses came to town and set up parks and public places. The two songs that could be included of this time period is It's a Long, Long Way to Chipperary. And another song is the National Airs of Allies. A big poem from this time was in the Flanders Field. A line from the poem reads, We are the dead. Short days ago we lived. Fell down. Saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders Field. Some beautiful words from John McRae. But jumping back into the people back home, depending on your social status, you could join various social groups such as the Gleaners of Nature, Sewing and Craft Groups, Supporting and church groups, as well as various lodges and friendly societies. Well-to-do ladies would often join committees and organize events such as bazaars, VTs, and expeditions to raise money for hospitals, churches, and charitable expeditions. Organizations such as the YMCA and the Salvation Army volunteers was provided for the soldiers for their comfort, and they often held singing concerts and get-togethers. To recap, through all the negatives of the war, there were many forms of entertainment to lift people's spirits and to give them something to do in their spare time. Thank you, Aaron, for coming back to the Back to the Past podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm Chloe and I'm Char and, and welcome, welcome to, to the, the Shook, Shook podcast. podcast. In today's episode we're going to talk about women in World War One and how they were a huge part of this war. To understand how women played such a detrimental role in this war we are going to do a quick background run through of what this war, this war was and why it is relevant. World War One, also known as the Great War, began in 1914 after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. 
His assassination catapulted into a war across Europe that lasted until 1918. The assassination was undoubtedly what sparked the war to begin, but beforehand there were four main causes to why this war, this war would start, those being militarism, alliances, imperialism, and nationalism. As you can imagine, this war was fought by a vast amount of men. As men began leaving home, their jobs became vacant. Women soon began filling these jobs, so the economy would still run and they could supply their families with necessities. Companies were hesitant in hiring women to fill as men places. These jobs were still seen as men's work. However, with so many men leaving to go aid in war, the need for women workers became urgent. Some of the jobs that were most influential that women took over were jobs on the railroads, farming, nursing, making ammunition for the war, and factory jobs. As women took these jobs on, they proved that they were just as important to the war effort as men had been. Women's rights were greatly affected by their war efforts with their temporary freedom, but they were able to prove to many American citizens, but more importantly President Woodrow Wilson, that they deserve equal rights. With women being such a prominent factor in World War I, many southern states began accepting women's suffrage. However, there were a lot there was a lot more that needed to be done to step in the direction of equal rights for women. The 19th Amendment, which was passed in 1920, prohibited states to deny voters based on their sex. This was a major step towards equal rights for women. Another important piece of information that needs to be remembered is that during World War I, women of color started integrating themselves into the workplace when possible. One of the most prominent nurses for the war was a woman of color. No one knows her name, but she was depicted doing a job that many were really reliant on. Many women of color acted as seamstresses for supplying soldiers with clothing during the war. One of the most well-known factories for this was Liverpool's Libra Factory, which at the time was owned by Quakers. Surprisingly, they had a stereotype for being discriminatory towards hiring women of color. So, during World War I, women started gaining grounds that would lead them to women's suffrage. They were able to show their worth through taking on jobs that men left vacant when leaving for war. Women were a key factor in why the economy did not crash completely in World War I, and also aided the soldiers majorly through the jobs they picked up. Through World War I, we were able to see women finally having a freedom that previously was only ever obtainable through dreams. This not only proved to many that they were capable, but it also proved to women that this was something worth fighting for. And we see these efforts pay off by seeing women of color finally having a stance in employment. Efforts towards equal rights for women was also noticed when states started accepting women's suffrage. Not to mention, the 19th Amendment was passed a few years later, which was a which was huge for women. That wraps up this episode of the Shook Podcast. Make sure to stay tuned for the next episode and leave any suggestions you have. ladies and gentlemen today you join me for another odd bits podcast where we cover the odd bits and pieces of history today we're going over the world war one watercraft ships u-boats submarines and a lot of things that involve the water let's start it off big the dreadnoughts the dreadnoughts are hulking masses of steel they were relatively new to the battlefields at the time or the battle seas they were built for a rather simple reason to be big and to be scary they had a massive amount of steel plating accumulating to a little over 20,000 tons in weight with a standard load that includes uh, ammunition, crew supplies, and all that good stuff. They had massive 12 inch, I believe, yep, 12 inch guns, 10 of them, and they did not see much actual combat. That's because during this time, many technologies were developed in the naval sector of warfare. Torpedoes were invented and they could sink a dreadnought in one hit and they were rather common at the seas. 
There was also sea mines that removed the need to face a dreadnought head-on. This led to the use of smaller and faster ships. Now, what the dreadnoughts were used for was psychological warfare. Uh, armies would threaten the dreadnoughts with their big, massive, scary guns and armor and said, I'll destroy you. But they never really fired on that too many targets. Now, those smaller and faster ships that were mainly used in the war were divided up into two subcategories. Battleships and destroyers. They often worked together to form the bulk of battle fleets. The battleship is probably what first comes to mind when you think of a navy. They support high firepower and medium armor, and they were excellent bombarders and fighters. However, they had the same glaring weakness as the dreadnoughts, and that's torpedoes. This is where the destroyer comes in. Faster and smaller than the battleships, they were designed to be able to maneuver and target torpedo boats and submarines. As engines became more efficient, they grew in size to about 1,000 tons by the end of the war. Now you've heard me mention torpedoes a few good times. These are simple underwater missiles that were hard to hit and packed a powerful punch. While just about any ship can be equipped with them, the most notorious were the submarines and the U-boats. Now U-boats bear many similarities to a submarine, but they are not the same. The biggest difference is their intent of use. The U-boat, meaning undersea boats because people are creative in history, were intended to travel on the surface of the water and they preferred to attack from the surface of water, mainly at night. However, they did have the capability to go underwater and launch underwater attacks. A submarine is meant to travel and attack entirely from under the water. Now, every nation had every kind of ship, Britain, France, US, Germany, but different nations had different staples. The British Navy was the most powerful, you know, they loved to flex their naval might. However, they spent so much on their navy that it almost bankrupted them by the end of the war. The US, they got into the war kind of late, so they didn't really get to build much of a reputation, but they had many new technologies working for them. And Germans, obviously, they had the U-boats and submarines, they had become masters of the warfare which inadvertently led to the U.S. being dragged into the war. And at this time, airplanes weren't invented yet, so they had to deal with, well, they weren't used in war. So, sub ships were used to transport goods to the soldiers fighting on the front lines. This has been an Odd Bits podcast, and I thank you kindly for joining me this evening. Sorry, we should probably explain to our listeners what a trench is, just in case they don't know. Exactly. So a trench is a long, deep ditch that is dug for protective defenses. They are dug in a zigzag form so the enemy could not fire artillery for more than a few yards and originally started out as foxholes to protect a single soldier. They developed into a trench by connecting two with a space just deep enough to crawl through. Wow! That was close! These hellish trenches were most often used on the Western Front. Which was in between the France-Belgium area. To fight the Germans and other Central Powers. And can be dated back to the American Civil War. So they weren't new to combat during this great war. 
However, they were more important in developing strategies against modern weapons. Oh no, not another tank! Soldiers would occupy these nasty trenches for weeks at a time to protect themselves from machine gun fire and, to some degree, chemical warfare. Although the trenches offered a small amount of time to put a gas mask on, some soldiers still suffered from the effects. Tell us about those nasty side effects, Caitlin. Right. I mentioned that the trenches were very unsanitary, right? Yeah, Yeah. who could forget? forget? Well, that's one of the main reasons soldiers got sick. Unsanitary conditions cause sicknesses like influenza, typhoid fever, dysentery, and cholera. And if that isn't bad enough, wait, there's more. Oh yeah, constant exposure to the wetness cause trench foot and trench mouth. I definitely suggest that you wait until way after you finish your lunch to search up what these look like. (sighs) Yeah, and if you can hear poor Johnny over there, it seems that Caitlin has one more thing to talk about. What Johnny's suffering from is known as shell shock. After being trapped in these trenches under the constant bombardment from the enemy, most soldiers like Johnny developed this. In my opinion, the effects and casualties from the trenches are what made this war so deadly. Give us the numbers, Zach. Yup, and just like Lucy said, trench warfare caused a bunch of casualties. At the start of the war, many soldiers would mount bayonets to their rifles and charge across the area called No Man's Land. No Man's Land was an area of desolated fields of mines and ruins. This was rarely effective and often resulted in mass casualties. You were either blown up or shot down. Even if you got to the other side, you probably lived long enough to realize you were one of the very few that made it. To make matters worse, some armies, (coughs) the Germans, would attack the trenches at night using artillery. There was a very high number of deaths at the end of World War I. 20 million for both soldiers and civilians. The British suffered over 60,000 casualties at the Battle of Somme on just the first day alone. That's just one battle. Even then, most battles resulted in a stalemate. The battle is the only true one when side gains the land and the other is wiped out. Well, I'd say that concludes this episode of Terror in the Trenches. with the soldiers working alongside them. Some animals would hunt down mice and rats, while others helped to carry things that were necessary for war. I'm here to talk about how those animals helped and served during World War I. In World War I, horses were used for many different things. One thing that horses were used for was to transport ammunition and supplies to the front. They were also used for carrying messengers, pulling artillery, ambulances, and supply wagons. Horses were sometimes used to make cavalry charges as well. About 136,000 Australian horses served in World War I. The horses would be branded on the forehoof and this would be used to identify who the horses belonged to. 
Horses were not the only animal that served. Dogs were used in World War I for many uses as well. There were many different types of dogs on the battlefield, including sentry, scout, casualty, and messenger dogs. Sentry dogs were used to bark or alert people if there was an unknown or suspicious presence in camps or secured areas. Then scout dogs were used to detect where enemies are or were. They were specifically trained to be silent and stealthy. Casualty dogs were used to find the injured soldiers on the battlefield, and they carried medical supplies on them. Finally, messenger dogs had the dangerous job of transporting letters and other things from one place to another. The other two animals that served in World War I are birds and cats. Most birds were used to deliver messages, but the carneries were used to detect the poisonous carbon monoxide gas. Homing pigeons had a 95% success rate of delivering messages, so people brought hawks to hunt down these pigeons on the battlefield. Cats were used in the trenches to hunt down mice and rats before they got to the food. About 500,000 cats were used in World War I to hunt down the mice and to detect the poisonous gas. A lot of these animals served beside the soldiers and died on the battlefield in World War I. Dogs and horses had to wear gas masks with the soldiers when there was gas around. We have to remember how these animals risked their lives during World War I to save many soldiers. Next time you think about how these soldiers died in World War I, just remember that thousands of animals gave their lives too. podcast. My name is Dylan, and today we're going to talk about World War One, or as the Harvard Crimson would call it, the War of Positions. You may be wondering why they call it that, and I'm here to tell you that reason. But for that, you have to join me on my journey and learn some things about the geography of war. World War One took place in Europe, if you did not know, and Europe just so happens to contain many mountains and hills. So when Germany went to attack France, they had a lot of trouble during the Battle of Verdun, taking over Verdun. The slopes and hills that are around France acted as a natural defense for them, and the Germans had to sacrifice 500,000 men in that battle alone. Another example of Earth's geography acting against Germany was when they were, when, was when they were going through the one passage that went through Ardennes, with only one way through. They were cut off by the Allies' army on one side, and behind them, the geography stacked heavily against them, trapping them in the forest. With no retreat and heavy losses, they took a truce and had to leave the territory in turn for their lives. <laughs> Something else that the Allied Allies had on their side was resources. The Allied powers had more military power because of the population they had and the modern battleships they had in their armies. They could also supply themselves with enough bare necessities like food, besides Great Britain. Germany, however, had a really struggled with having enough food, and the only thing that the Central Powers really had was the chemical and steel industry that they possessed to make weapons. 
the geography of the Allied Powers territory was a far stronger advantage when combined with the supplies, and that led to the Central Powers having a little chance of winning the war over time. Something that the, both sides had, however, were trenches. World War I is famously known for its trench warfare, and in general, neither side had an advantage. The Western Front was winning in the beginning, but the Germans were quote-unquote winning in the end, so it just leads to an overall draw with both sides taking heavy damages and the no-man's land stalling the entire engagement. All that information, ladies and gentlemen, is why it is called the War of Positions, and it's also how the geography of the Allied territory, along with the supplies they had, gave them a large advantage over the Central Powers. Before my next podcast, try to do some research of your own about this topic or other topics, so you can instead teach me some interesting facts about the First World War. Thank you. on the front itself. Poetry as well became very big. For example, the poem in Flanders Fields is a very big poem from this era and depicts the sights and feelings they would feel in war. My clear reason for making this podcast is to inform you of the arts and the big part of history. I can also say that art plays a big part in the world even in its darkest times. Dark times come with happy sensations. A lesson I learned, there's always something keeping you happy for a short period of time in a dark place. And well, in war, I guess it could be art. Even when death is happening around, there has to be something keeping you from coming out of your own control. This was a very good era for coming, for coming art and music. It also bring a lot of people, especially through true emotion. True emotion is a very good thing when making art because it adds an element that is desired most, truth. During the First World War, literature was big, and this is what the war was remembered for part two war poets that were well-known are Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen. The Sherston Trilogy was written by Siegfried Sassoon. The Sherston Trilogy won high acclaim. The Memoirs of a Fox Hunting Man took the Hawthorne Prize for Literature in 1928. Wilfred Owens has several pieces of literature that talk about war in a poem form. George Butterworth was a war composer who created a song called Six Songs from a Shire Lad. He enlisted in 1914 to fight in the Battle of the Somme. Butterworth died shortly after, but in his honor, there's a trench name for him. Maurice Ravel was another war composer who, after the war, made a famous song called The Piano Concerto for the Left Hand. Then an Austrian war composer named Alban Berg, who was transferred away from war, had been an opera called Wazek. It was finally finished in the year of 1922. This is an impact of World War I because it shows that people who experience traumatic, traumatic experiences like those in World War I can come home and write about them. 
this gives those people a good coping mechanism. What I feel was impacted most out of the war is the history. The art and music created out of this will add to the history of the war. As you can see, art has played a big part whether it was inside the actual war or not inside the actual war. Some works were published before or after, but that does not change the significance of them because they come about how they feel about war or their dramatic experiences from it. These experiences always lead to the great arts because they are the raw truth. The raw truth is what wins rewards like Siegfried and Sassoon did. Art takes its form from this, and there are so many examples that you could look at for hours. Poetry or music is a very good thing to actually look into, but more importantly, some of the best things come from people like in the lost generation. Today, I will be talking about women of World War I, or to be more specific, the impact that women had on World War I. Women were basically the backbone of the war. Some of you may be asking, what do you mean, Naysia? Well, what I mean is that while men were being drafted left and right to join the war, this left women behind to care for children and keep society running. The war greatly changed the roles of women. With all the men gone, many job openings were left behind that needed to be filled so that soldiers could fight successfully and society would not crumble. This is where women began to step in. They went from housewives that were expected to cook, clean, and care for the children all day long to working in factories, becoming messengers, truck drivers, as well as many other things. The factories were shifting to war-related work. This means that not only were women getting more roles and respect in society, but they are providing the soldiers with the weapons and vehicles they would use to win the war. Women were also taking over the agriculture, which was providing food for the country as well as the military. Women went further than this. They were also helping the military. At least 8 million women volunteered as Red Cross workers. They helped in a variety of ways, from being nurse aides and making dressings for surgeries to running the canteen and simply providing entertainment for the soldiers. When the forces were getting insufficient amounts of recruits and the soldiers no longer had time to do the onshore jobs, women were there to voluntarily be recruited and fill those roles. This is where they took over as stenographers, clerks, radio operators, nurses, and other onshore jobs. The Navy Nurse Corps, along with the Army, provided many nurses to the war. When the war was over, women even got something out of the conflict. Women had been putting a lot of pressure on President Woodrow Wilson to give them the right to vote. A few weeks before the war ended, on September 30, 1918, Wilson decided to go to Congress where he argued that women had been made partners in the war and after lots of deliberation on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment was added to the Constitution. So the takeaway from all of this is that although World War I was hard for everyone involved, women stepped up to the plate and aided the best that they could. They provided weapons, vehicles, food, 
medical care and any other services that they could. In return for their efforts, they even got something that they had been fighting for for years. I'm Asia McClendon, and thank you for tuning in today, and I hope to see you again soon. Imagine your adorable dog or loving cat being placed in the war. Well, hate to break it to you, but these animals were really placed in the war with different roles in action. These animals were used for transportation, back and forth communication, and companionship. All of these animals played important key roles during the war, including household animals and dangerous animals that should not even be tamed. I will be sharing eight of these animals with you. And don't worry, there were a lot more animals than eight species. In fact, there were over 16 million animals that served in the war. Amazing, right? Number 1. Camels Camels carried wounded men to safety on a northwestern front of India in 1917. Camels were also used in the Sinai and Palestine campaigns. Their ability to carry heavy loads and go without water made them an ideal mode of transportation in hot climates. Number 2. French Red Cross Dogs these dogs lined up for inspection on the Western Front in 1914. These specially trained dogs wore harnesses containing metal equipment, medical equipment, which they delivered to injured soldiers on the battlefield. Number three, horses. Horses were mainly used to travel. Number four, mules. Mules were used in World War I to carry artillery, food supplies, and even wounded soldiers on the battlefield. Number five, pigeons were trained to carry baskets with letters in it for away communication. Number six, dogs. Dogs were used to detect poisonous gases and they were also used to send messages just like the pigeons. They were called messenger dogs. Seven, cats. Cats were used to detect poisonous gases also, but they were also used in trenches to kill the rats and mice roaming to prevent less diseases. And eight, elephants. Elephants were used for transportation, carrying wounded soldiers, medicine, and artillery weapons just like the mules and camels. Not all animals were only used for work on the battlefield. Dogs, cats, and more unusual animals including monkeys, bears, and lions were kept as pets as mascots to raise moral support and provide comfort during the war. All of these animals played an important key role in World War I, whether they were used for moral support or used on the battlefield for safety. All of these animals were and are important during World War I, and still are. Without these animals, they would be limited on the amount of things the soldiers could do, and without the animals, would they have succeeded and prospered during the war? My answer is no, because without all the trained animals assigned roles, the soldiers would not have survived for long especially the animals that played a huge role during the war, such as dogs and cats sniffing out poison gases, pigeons and dogs delivering messages, and mules and camels carrying medicines for the wounded soldiers. They made the war a lot more safe and protective, and without them, it would have been chaos for the soldiers and the war itself.
World War I, there were some pretty amazing weapons, aircrafts, and tanks that were being developed and tested to be used in the war and to ensure victory. War planes were just starting to enter the scene. Such planes were made of thin sheets of metal and usually had a fixed gun. The main focus of today will be on the planes and zeppelins and to answer the question, what effect did aircrafts have on World War I and how dominant were they? At the beginning of the war, the purpose aircrafts held was to recon, which is the act of gathering information. Trench warfare was the dominant style of fighting. Therefore, gathering information on the enemy was a difficult process. Aircrafts were essential for finding out where exactly the enemy was, which made eyesight one of the vital assets for pilots. Which leads us to an interesting fact that many British pilots had been seen taken on their orange hue. Among their ranks, it is believed that eating carrots can lead to an improved level of eyesight for pilots during combat. The rumor of carrots leading to improved air fighting ability was likely allowed by the British government. At the time of the war, the British were developing radar. Radar allowed the British pilots to better locate and take down their German enemies. When speaking of aircraft, it is important to bring up the Zeppelin. Zeppelins are a blimp-like airship created by a German inventor named Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Zeppelins were sometimes used as bombers, but were mainly used for scouting. There were 51 Zeppelin air raids that occurred over the span of World War I. Over 5,800 bombs were dropped, causing 557 deaths and 1,358 injuries. This led to the civilian population fearing the sight of a Zeppelin. Zeppelins were good for recon and maintaining air superiority, but fell out of use due to their size and slow speed. Zeppelins also suffered from a cost problem due to, the size of, due to their size and the materials needed to produce them. One of these materials was an element called hydrogen, which is dangerous to use because of its high explosiveness. Both the planes and zeppelins impacted World War I by giving soldiers in the war more options as how they were going to fight. They were crucial in both combat, such as trench runs and the recon used for making strategies. Whichever side had the best aircraft or zeppelin was at a huge advantage during the war. These new creations of war were not to be taken lightly. After the war, many more paths of aircraft were explored, such as cargo and transportation. Planes were becoming not only a staple in war, but a staple in the war world as we see it today. Hello, this is the World War One Podcast, and I'm your host, Warren Galavis. Um, today, we will be talking about the impact medicine has had on World War One. As we all know, World War One was one of the deadliest wars in history, and has the name, the nickname, of the Great War or the War to End All Wars, which has managed to rack up 40 million deaths from the start of the war in 1914 and in, to the end of the war in 1918. Now, would you imagine the the numbers? would be like without the medical advancements that we made in World War One. Most hospitals in World War One were set up behind battle lines, which were most often intense. Many people 
that helped in these hospitals were the British Red Cross and many volunteering nurses. Now let's talk about what, what caused some of these injuries. Well, the most common uh, wounds that were in World War I were gunshot and artillery wounds. Now imagine all the cuts and openings that leaves on your body for all those diseases to crawl in there. There were so many diseases on those nasty trenches such as trench foot, trench fever, pneumonia, and the flu. So with all these diseases roaming around, how did doctors and nurses combat these deadly diseases? Well, they used x-rays to find bullets in soldiers' bodies. They used morphine as painkillers and hypochlorite to kill the bacterias in the, in the wound before amputation. Uh, they even started to make vaccines for, for typhoid and tetanitis. In World War I, they started, they started to collect blood, which allowed doctors to do blood transfusions, which would save soldiers from tissue damage and contagious diseases that would normally be fatal. Even with, the, even with our advancements in medicine, diseases managed to kill at least more than 2 million soldiers. The war itself managed to kill 40 million people. The war ended in 1918. But what many people don't know is that there was a little disease that started in 1918 with the name of the Spanish flu, which killed 50 million people, which was more than the Great War itself. Many experts say that this disease ended the war, the war much sooner. Our medicine was no match for this pandemic. As always, this was your World War I uh, podcast. And what do you think the war would have looked like? if they had the medicine we had today and what do you think was worse the spanish flu pandemic or the pandemic that we're trapped in now the great war narrative that's really informative the podcast it clinches the truth of the trenches when these men are at rock bottom they dug even deeper Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Trench Life. Do you think you have what it takes to handle life in the trenches? Listen to the schedule and then see if you change your mind. At 5 in the morning, the soldiers would stand to, which is short for stay in the arms, meaning that they were on high alert for an enemy attack. At 5.30, they would get their ration of rum, and at 6 a.m., they would stand down. At 7 a.m., they would eat breakfast. They would usually eat bacon and drink tea. And then after 8, they would clean themselves, their weapons, and tidy up the trench as best as they could. At 12, they ate lunch, and after that, that was their time to sleep, and they had some downtime. At 6 p.m., they had another stand to, and at 6.30 p.m., they stood down. From 6.30 p.m. onwards, they would work during the night. They would put barbed wire up, dig trenches, and do whatever they needed to get ready for the next day. Soldiers only slept in the afternoon during daylight and at night for an hour at a time. During rest time, they wrote letters and played card games. Now let's talk about injuries. There were many injuries in the trenches. People were shot, cut, and missing flesh because rats would eat at them while they slept. The most common injuries were gunshot wounds and chemical gas wounds. The most well-known injury was trench foot. Trench foot occurs when the feet remain wet for a prolonged amount of time without treatment normally two or three days. If left untreated, the condition may result in not being able to walk, loss of tissue, and even permanent nerve damage. D. 
do you think that everything that happened in the First World War was bloody and horrific? Well, you might just be wrong. Not everything that happened in the war was bad. During the first Christmas of the war, something unique happened in some parts of the Western Front. On Christmas Eve, soldiers from both sides put down their weapons and met in no man's land. They sang carols like Silent Night. Men from both sides gave gifts to each other. The Germans gave sausages and the British gave the Germans chocolate. On Christmas Day, a British soldier kicked us football out of his trench and the Germans joined in. It was reported that Germany won the match 3-2. The British High Command did not agree with the truth. They even suggested that the Germans were planning an attack. They were ignored and no guns were fired on Christmas Day 1914. The truth lasted until New Year's in some parts of the Western Front, but it wasn't long before soldiers on both sides returned to life in the trenches. Who's hungry? Let's talk about meals. A total of 3,240,948 tons of food was sent from Britain to the soldiers fighting in France and Belgium during the First World War. The bulk of their diet in the trenches was mainly canned corned beef, bread, and biscuits. By the winter of 1916, flour was in such short supply that bread was being made with dried ground turnips. The main food was now pea soup with few lumps of horse meat. Kitchen staff became more and more dependent on local vegetables and had to use weeds in soups and stews. By the time the food reached the front lines, it was always cold. Think of something that you take for granted. I bet none of you thought about hygiene practices. During the First World War, soldiers hardly ever showered. They done good to shower once a month. They often just clean their feet. The stench in the trenches smelled like blood, sweat, and body odor. Rats would eat at the soldiers' wounded areas. Dead bodies remained inside the trenches. However, the soldiers did what they could to try and stay clean. They would wash their clothes in boiling water and dry them in an oven. Dead animal carcasses were removed from the eating area, and soldiers must wash their feet at least once a day while also paying attention to their nails, mouth, and hair. The food was kept from flies and dust, and it was also kept far away from manure and corpse. This is your host, Dylan. Thank you for listening to the Trench Life Podcast, and have a wonderful day. As some of you may know, in the war, even the strongest of the strongest men couldn't handle the women nor the medicine. Good thing we're here today where there's not really a big issue to us. Today we're here with one of the most notable women during World War I. Former World War I nurse, now novelist and poet, Mary Borden. Say hi to the people, Borden. Hello, world. I hope you're all doing well, because we are. On today's cast, we'll be discussing women in medicine in World War I. Mary, go ahead and tell people about yourself. Many may know me from my novels and poems and really not my true war experience. I established a mobile hospital on the Western Front, as I portray in my writings. Everything was not silver and gold. Being a woman during that time was not easy. What was it like for women who were going through the recruitment and those back at home. Many women were registering under the Salvation Army who housed 200 plus nurses throughout about 750 hospitals. Others stayed at home and decided to follow very strict guidelines 
such as living meat intake, canned food, and farming. As you mentioned registration, what do you all enlist as, since females were not necessarily accepted? The name for us has always been funny to me. <laughs> we were announced as yeoman. The name really stuck around with us as we went to the registration. <laughs> Out of all things yeoman, it is known that all you yeomen were not accepted. Do you know any other things that these yeomen that were denied may have explored? Yes, many women was actually civilians, contract surgeons. Not everyone who was accepted were nurses either. What exactly were other jobs that women could explore during the war? Things such as truck drivers, mechanics, radio operators, and many more behind the scenes jobs. Borden, you were one of the nurses who made it to the very end one who had to survive on the front lines. What would you say changed over time? Initially, we were more of behind the scenes, you know, but at the end, we were basically on the front line. Sometimes we actually was up close with the battles. Up close and personal means you obviously could not take everything with you. What were your top wardrobes? It was for sure cocaine and vodka. It was always fun when they were not the they were so gullible and they were very interesting to work with. The random outbursts when there were nothing happening always kept me going. I could only imagine getting hurt than being drunk. Y'all were one heck of a mobile hospital, I must say. As a hospital during this horrific war, what would you say the three elements of medicine were? very common to come across shell shock which is basically where your muscles shut down how would you all go about dealing with that when a soldier was dying with shell shock we would do one of the three things we would either give a massage which we would rather do if that does not work we will then have to go on to electric shock therapy or treatment and then lastly hypnotherapy overall how do you think such brave woman like yourself has impacted the war itself. Personally, I believe we carried the war. Without us, the war would have caused many more casualties. World War I was a major war, and without us, it could have caused way more damage to the state and to the soldiers, mentally and physically. I'm afraid to say, we must leave it here. Is there any way I could perhaps get a tad of your wardrobes? <laughs> That's all here, folks. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you a lot, Miss Borden. Thank you as well. And we're out, folks. <laughs> Lucas Carroll and this is my co-host Jennifer Hodge and we will be going over different types of weapons used in World War One. 
With the beginning of the war, nations quickly realized that this war was nothing as what they are used to. Traditional wars were fought with people standing in line shooting at people in front of them. Realizing something needed to be done, armies started to dig trenches, but trenches are not the topic we are discussing. Today we are talking about a new age of warfare. To start off, we'll be going over chemical weapons and moving on from there. Did you know the modern version of chemical weapons began in the First World War? Both sides were not averse to using chemical weapons. In fact, they both caused each other and oftentimes their own selves massive and agonizing suffering on the battlefield, along with significant amount of, of casualties. For example, all it would take for mustard gas would be for the wind to turn in their own direction and it would hurt them severely. It would burn their lungs. It, it would honestly liquefy them sometimes. They would cough it up. It was, it was awful. Most chemical weapons basically consisted of known chemicals, com known commercial chemicals, but put into standard munitions such as grenades and artillery, sh artillery shells. The chemicals they used often were chlorine, phosphate, and bromine. That's just one of the few I can name off the top of my head. Let's move on. Fun fact. Many people believe that the first chemical weapons were used as a killing agent, but instead, the French were some of the first by using a tear gas-like chemical. A weapon that is not exactly new to the world, but still caused massive damage is the machine gun. A type of machine gun was used in the American Civil War called the Gatling gun. Huge improvements were made to this new weapon to where it was belt-fed and can shoot more lead than its older model. All sides of the war had its own variant of the machine gun, a problem with the weapon that it was heavy and awkward to move. A machine gun crew would normally be three man crew or more. The rate of fire on average would be between 400 to 600 rounds per minute. As the war progressed, these guns became more lightweight and would only take one person to operate. A major invention came to light that would be the tank. The first tank was actually a prototype called Little Willie in 1915. This was actually this was quickly shut down for being too slow and unreliable. In 1916, the Mark I tank was produced, first used in the Battle of Somme. Many still broke down and destroyed, but still left a mark in this new age of warfare. Soon after, British deployed the first tank ever. Other nations soon raced to get their own version of the tank. The average speed for a tank during that time was roughly four miles per hour. During the war, all tanks had their problem with being too slow, breaking down all the time. Our next topic will be planes. Planes were new in the beginning of the 20th century, but were made better during wartime. In the beginning of the war, planes were used for aerial views of the battlefield and spying. Months later, people will here are the first dogfights of the 20, 20th century. Planes varied from nation to nation and the manpower they had. For instance, Germany has some of the best well-known pilots everyone has heard around the world, such as Manfred von Richthofen, or known as the Red Baron. Different planes were made, such as the triplane, which had three wings, two-seater planes, and even long-range bombers planes. Aerial combat was so fierce that Great Britain and France would have a constant supply of men to keep fighting. On the other side, Germany had a limited manpower for to use for aerial combat, but made up for having some of the best pilots.
Did you know Walt Disney during this time let America use any trademark character except Bambi because of ba Bambi couldn't be shot down? Now that will conclude some of the many weapons first used in the world, First World War and some changes it caused to the troops fighting. Welcome back. You are here with Riley and Montserrat. And that's on what? Period. Now, Monse, we're going to take it back to the year of 1914. Let's talk about World War I tunnelers. During World War I, we had these military employed specialist miners to dig tunnels under no man's land. What is no man's land? No man's land is just the land between the enemies. I actually read a super cool journal entry that I thought was super interesting. The guys was saying how they would be ordered to run across no man's land just to attack the enemy. You know what, something like that happened to me when I was little. My brother would make me go to the kitchen and sneak some candy out of the candy jar. Just happened that my mom walked in on me getting the candy and she threw the chancla at me. And after that, I don't remember what happened. I just woke up in bed. Are you for real? Nah, I'm just playing. You know what? When I was younger, mm, yeah, never mind. That story sounds way too depressing. Um, anyways, back to the topic. The main objective was to place mines beneath enemy defense positions. They would start these mines through their trenches. Trenches are pretty much deep ditches that the soldiers would hide and live in to protect themselves from the enemy. Now that you know what the tunnelers are, let's go a little more in-depth. These miners, or tunnelers, will dig into the land, but they would have to take a lot of safety precautions. They would need to listen for other miners so that they would not, have, they would not run into the enemy underground. One method tunnelers did was to, to drive a stick into the ground and hold the other end between the teeth to feel for underground vibrations got to the enemy land underground, they would place a grenade. When this explosion from the grenade would go off, it would destroy that part of the trench. What happened to the troops that placed the grenade? Hmm. I don't know. Do you think they got away from the explosion, or did they just have to die? Well, let me see what I can find about this. Oh! Stop. Because would you look at that? It's 10.30. We started digging way too deep into this day. Um, yeah, it's time to head out. Thank you for listening. Before we leave, can I get a owa owa? Owa owa. Goodbye, Monse. Goodbye, Riley. And, and goodbye, America. History podcast. Today we are talking about the weapons that helped the nations fight the First World War. I mean, what would be war without weapons? No, war wouldn't be war without weapons. What are they going to do? Talk things out with nations who are so about themselves? I don't think so. Well, weapons have a great effect on the war, and the more weapons a 
the nation has, the more the other nations are scared of them. So what kind of weapons were used during the First World War? There were a good bit of guns used. For example, guns like bolt actions that were used by the British in the trenches, machine guns that needed four to six men to work, and large field guns that delivered 12 shells that will explode on impact. That's not all of the weapons that were used. Wow, I bet you large field guns would create devastating blows to the enemies. Could you tell us more about weapons that were used during this war? More weapons that were used during the war were zeppelins, planes, tanks, and U-boats. Zeppelins were also called blimps. Zeppelins were airships that were used in the early part of the First World War in bombing raids by the Germans. They didn't last long though, and were abandoned because they were too easy to shoot down. Planes were another type of airship that were used to deliver bombs and spy on the enemies. They were equipped with machine guns and would fight other aircraft in the air, which would be called dogfights. Tell them about tanks and U-boats. Well, tanks were new and so were U-boats. Tanks had many evolutions throughout the war. The main reason the military loved the idea was it was a driving fault, but they were hard to manage technical-wise and due to their size. Later in the war, when the military had a better idea of the tank, they became more efficient. Okay, well that is neat. Now what about U-boats? Did they play a major role in the Great War? Well, U-boats were actually made from Germans to attack the resource boats in the Atlantic. Due to the design though, they can only submerge for two hours at a time, and only shoot of torpedoes. The torpedoes were used to blow up ships carrying supplies from America and Britain. But without the use of U-boats, the U.S. wouldn't have a main reason to join the war. I can think of one more weapon used in World War I, gas. Gas was used as a toxin and it was very dangerous. If you came in contact with gas, then it was a very painful way to die. There were two different toxic gases used in the war, which are chlorine and mustard gas. Chlorine gas was first used by the Germans. This gas, if inhaled, can cause a burning sensation in the throat and chest. The thing about chlorine gas is that the weather must be right. Mustard gas was the most deadly weapon because it was fired in trenches, in shells, and it was colorless. This gas takes about 12 hours to take effect, and the effects would be blistering skin, vomiting, sore eyes, and internal and external bleeding. Gas was a really good weapon to cause a good amount of casualties and was hard to detect. And World War I was an eye-opener for new weapons that were used to express the complaint and distress of different countries involved. Without weapons, war would be war. War is based on weapons. Weapons are the building blocks that help countries fight for what they believe in and for what they want. Weapons have affected the war and will have an effect on future wars to come. Thank you. Welcome to Worldcraft Wars. This is Gabby, and we have Marlene here with us today. Hello, everyone. So, Marlene, you want to tell the audience what exactly is Worldcraft Wars? 
Yes, so we are here today to find out which of the two inventions from World War One went number one for most destructive. Yes, thank you. So before we get rolling, we want to give a special thanks to our sponsor, Cleveland Early College High School, for this opportunity today. And a shout out to our awesome producers, Mr. Love and Mr. Haynes, for all of their hard work. And of course, to all of our listeners for coming here today. Alrighty, so to introduce our two contestants for World Craft Wars, we have Grand Naval Warship coming from Great Britain and the US, and the Submarine Warfare Phenomenon, specifically U-Boats, coming to us from Germany. U-Boats as in me-boats? <laughs> no, apparently it stands for Unterseeboots. Unter what? Well, it's just under sea boat, like, uh, I think it's German. Uh, it means submarine. <laughs> oh, okay. That makes a lot more sense. So then, what is this U-boat like? What does it do? Why was it made? And what about naval ships? Which is better? Whoa, that's, that's a lot of questions. Great questions, might I add. And of course, we need to get some background info on our contestants. So we have invited a special guest with us today, a colleague from Cleveland Early College High School, Logan Waters. A round of applause. <laughs> so Logan, you said you're a world-renowned specialist on warships, right? I never said that. Yes, you did. That's the whole reason why we invited you today. Orlando, I thought you said. I know I. Well, I did do a project on warships not so long ago. Does that count? Uh, yeah. Okay, well, can you tell us a little bit about naval ships and the inventions of U-boats in World War One? Okay, yeah, so the main naval ships that were used during World War I were called cruisers. They were like these large surface warships built for high speed and cruising. They would be used to project one's fleet, coastline, and intimidate nearby enemies. U-boats were invented in 1850 by a man named Wilhelm Bauer. These ships were substitutes for surface commerce raiders, or smaller military ships. They'd be used by Germany to maintain stealth when at war with enemy ships. Well, I mean, it seems to me that they're more for defensive purposes. So what would you say about naval ships? What makes them so destructive? That's a really good question. The cruisers are quite dangerous as they would not only be large, really good at getting high speeds, but also contain big cannons to propel projectile weapons like rockets, missiles, or simply drop mines within the shore. These cannons could shoot up to 19,000 to around 2,700 pounds in weight and could fly as far as 25 miles in distance in just one and a half minutes time. 24 miles in it, that's insane. I could barely make a mile in an hour. Imagine 24. You take an hour to walk one mile? <laughs> That's besides the point. So Logan, what about U-boats? As friendly as the name sounds, this German submarine has the ability to wipe out an entire convoy ships. To show you how scary these warships could be, just think about any thriller or horror film you have ever seen. The scary part is not when the murder or monster is present, but when it is nowhere in sight. The person is waking up to the source of the sound and then boom, 
Out of nowhere, they appear, and before you know it, they are dead. Kind of the same with these U-boats. The scary part isn't when you can see them, but when you have lost sight of them. And this puts everyone in danger. Oh, it gives me chills just thinking about it. Alright, so now that we have a good overview on how our two inventions are clearly present on the danger scale, let's get a little more detail on how these ships look like. Logan, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, a naval ship cruiser is very large as it ranges from 3,000 to 7,000 tons in size and is armed with guns sizing from 6 to 7.5 inches. U-boats would be around 214 feet long, and they would be small in size, making it only a thousand tons. A U-boat would be able to carry around 35 men and 12 torpedoes. Interesting fact. In World War I, a submarine sunk the luxurious ship Lusitania in May 7th of 1915, which killed 1,191 people, leaving only 761 survivors. Whoa, that's insane! How could something so small cause so much damage? 1,198 people. Wow. So, in regards to World War I itself, considering U-boats, in contrast to naval ships, were created more recent in time, how would you say they sort of revolutionized the war? Well... Watercrafts were a cause for a big change as it resulted in the evolution of the Navy during that time. An example is what was called the Razzle Dazzle. Germany wasn't able to identify the ships they were fighting, so they used this, which was a camouflage. It was stripes that were put in specific patterns, and this would make it to where whenever they were fighting ships, they would know who they are fighting and which type of ship they were fighting. Another impact was in 1915. The North Sea was declared a war zone, which was where the U-boats adopted a policy of unrestricted submarine warfare. Britain had been blocking Germany's ports, and this caused Germany to start using U-boats to take down Britain's merchant ships. The biggest impact these watercraft had was Germany using the U-boat U-20 to take down the passenger liner RMS Lusitania ship. This caused conflict with America and Germany, and eventually caused America to join this war. The conflict has actually caused Germany to back down from using the unrestricted submarine warfare for a while. This all led to a change of course of the war. Wow, that's a lot to take in. It sure is. <laughs> but now that we have all we need, it's time to vote for who is the winner for this episode of Worldcraft Wars. We will be voting on a scale from 1 to 10, the levels of intimidation, strength, and destruction. So, Marlene, what is your verdict? Well, considering all these features, for naval ships, I would give Intimidation a 9 out of 10. For Strength, I'd give a 7 out of 10. And Weapon Capacity, a 7 out of 10. And for U-Boats, Intimidation has a 8 out of 10. Strength, an 8 out of 10. And Weapon Capacity, a 7 out of 10. All right. Uh, how about our guests? For naval ships, I would give an intimidation of 6 out of 10, a strength of 7 out of 10, and weapon capacity of 8 out of 10. Now for U-boats, I would give them a 10 out of 10 for intimidation, a 9 out of 10 for strength, and an 8 out of 10 for weapon capacity. Wow, awesome. So, counting up the votes now, it seems that 
naval ships got 73% of the votes and U-boats, 83%. There you have it. U-boats take the prize for number one most destructive in World War I by a whopping 10%. <laughs> <laughs> so that concludes today's podcast please let us know which innovation is your favorite thanks for joining us today on this episode of world craft wars until next time 